Not for lack of trying. <laughs> All right. We're here with Mr. Jay Dyer. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I've been I've been wanting to have you on for a couple of years, actually. And it, it took me a while to figure out. I was like, I don't want to waste this time because I know you're a busy guy and you're popular <laughs> and everybody's calling you trying to get you on. And so I was like, I want to find the right subject for Jay. And uh, I heard you on Courtney Turner's podcast with James Lindsay. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, that that's the one because uh, my buddy Buck told me to start reading Vogelin. So I was mm -hmm. like, yeah, Gnosticism. That's what right. we're talking about. So, so, so that's what made me contact you. Um, yeah, man. Um, give us, uh, give us a little bit of the, the history of Gnosticism because the way I look at like what's happening around us in modern society, it seems that there's this real Gnostic kind of, uh, point of view that's running through the middle of everything, even if that's not what they call themselves. Yeah, so Gnosticism, as you probably know, comes from the early Christian era when you had a lot of groups, a lot of sects that kind of wanted to do their own thing. And they were <clears throat> influenced quite a bit by Greek philosophy, Hellenic thought, as well as Far Eastern thought. So we see already in the early days of the church kind of the, the beginning struggle with this. Paul warns about not giving heed to those who profess to have gnosis falsely so-called or knowledge falsely so-called so even in the time of paul it was kind of becoming a problem and then as we get into about the 180s uh, saint irenaeus of Lyon writes his famous against heresies and about the first first 300 pages of that book deals with a myriad uh, of gnostic sects groups people with all kinds of different <clears throat> more ascetic leaning versions of gnosticism over all the way over to more um, lascivious sort of orgious orgiastic versions of Gnosticism so it was kind of all over the place and while Gnosticism in the early church kind of dies out the ideological strands of both Neoplatonic and and Gnostic thought continue up into the Middle Ages they kind of experience a, a rebirth with the Renaissance uh, people that left Byzantium like Plethon or his ideas that left Byzantium, I should say, that went on to influence a lot of the Enlightenment uh, hermeticists and Enlightenment alchemists. So we get Rosicrucianism uh, that that comes out of this uh, in Germany. A lot of the uh, second generation Lutheran theologians were also, according to Dame Francis Yates, into Rosicrucianism. And Rosicrucianism is was, was sort of a vehicle for this, as were a lot of Masonic lodges. They became vehicles for speculative masonry, which dabbled in Gnostic elements. And um, modern scientism, in my view, uh, kind of comes out of this idea. So scientism is a variant, I guess you could say, of, of Gnostic thought, hermetic thought. Uh, Hegel is a variant of Gnostic and hermetic thought. He was involved in some of the lodges, uh, the hermetic lodges of his time that were trying to re- produce the uh, neoplatonic heritage <clears throat> or the uh, uh, gnostic alchemical heritage and, and these things might be in certain areas in contrast with one another for example plotinus wrote against uh, her uh, gnosticism but they only disagreed in certain areas uh, for example one of those was what whether this world was inherently evil or whether it was just a lower metaphysical status from the higher realms so there are some disagreements between some of these uh, esoteric sects and groups. But the basic idea is of a flight from the temporal world, transcending into some other domain or reincarnation or the primacy of spirit, the spirit over against matter. Uh, this this uh, evolutionary process of Hegel's philosophy that everything is evolving into being pure spirit. I mean, all of these are part and parcel with Gnosticism in varying degrees. And, you know, ultimately it's a misdiagno misdiagnosis of human problems and human anthropology to think that rather than it's man's heart and repentance that is what he needs, it's uh, merely a lack of knowledge. And so it's a kind of a Pelagian idea that uh, it was inherited by some of these people from the uh, Greek philosophers, right? A lot of Greek philosophy said that man, no man knowingly uh, does wrong. So man's problem is a lack of knowledge. Of course, that's not man's problem. Man's problem is rooted in his heart and his noose and his lack of repentance. So it's a very different approach to anthropology and 
attaining, you know, mystical insights and apotheosis through rituals or perhaps just through contemplation or through nowadays even something like technology uh, and transhumanism being the path to immortality. One of the, one of the things that I kind of gathered from it is this idea that the elites are are granted special knowledge and I when I look at like the kind of like social engineering or the managerial movement that that has taken place here in the West, I I really see kind of a Gnostic element. And what really struck me was I've been doing a podcast for my paid subscribers called ESG this week, where I'm like covering the topics of ESG. And we started reading through um, an essay on the principle of population by Thomas Malthus. And I, the first thing I realized, recognized was kind of like this intertwining Gnostic element within his writing and, and the way he thinks about his ability to observe things that nobody else can see and how it's evolved in, in even people of modern times hold on to this Malthusian ideal, even though it's been basically been proven wrong in almost every facet. Yeah. He said, uh, I can look at a jar of flies and extrapolate from that, that there's going to be limited resources and we won't be able to feed everybody. So therefore we should control the population at the present. And that, that just goes back to Plato, Plato's models of uh, population control uh, Plato's versions and models of eugenics, <clears throat> which is, you know, ethnic hygiene, uh, racial hygiene, these kinds of things that the British Empire had sort of adopted wholesale. Again, I think ultimately through a lot of these sort of Gnostic and esoteric tendencies in uh, British Freemasonry, British secret societies, they, they were very enamored with a lot of this stuff. And you can see this reflected, for example, in uh, Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, which is supposed to be the Elizabethan narrative of the British Empire comparable to Virgil's Aeneid. And so that mythology is just project projecting this idea of a <clears throat> future utopian society. You get this with Bacon's New Atlantis, this kind of stuff based around science and scientism. So all of the original proponents of scientism, as we said, were mm -hmm. directly involved in various hermetic studies alchemy studies and lodges uh you know we see this influence even in descartes we can see it in uh probably leibniz we can see it in john i don't know if Locke Locke was a ds but he was connected to the british east india company um and in the case of galileo he seems to have had a, a very uh, adept interest in a lot of alchemical hermetic ideas and i'm not saying all these people are necessarily bad because of that that was sort of part of the, the spirit of that time was if you study science, you'd be studying this kind of stuff. Alchemy wasn't yet fully separated from chemistry. They're, they're kind of joined together. So, um, but, but the problem is that you get this resurgence of Neoplatonism and this resurgence of Gnostic ideas in these different schools and hermetic groups. And I think you're absolutely right that when we come all the way up to now, the Malthusian ethos is no different. It's still there, still totally enforced. It is what underlies the totality of the technocratic you know global agenda today with uh world economic forum davos all these groups they're they're essentially uh motivated by that malthusian idea as well as other ideas right other mm -hmm. ideas and mm -hmm. i think you're right to take it back absolutely to gnosticism 100 i was um one of the things that struck me as is kind of odd is talking to courtney turner talking to monica perez they would continue to bring up Fabianism to me. And I, I just never, it never registered the importance of Fabianism. Yeah. I mean, neither until recently. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I started reading as I've like dived deeper into ESG, I've, I've become more like enthralled with the Fabian ideals. How do the, how does Gnosticism kind of tie into Fabianism and what what is the link between Fabianism and modern times I can't quite find how it found its roots in modern progressive ideals through like Woodrow Wilson 
Yeah. So some of the, so Fabianism is a generation after Marx and Engels, and they saw the failures in classical Marxism. And some of those failures were that, you know, Marx had predicted this uprising of the proletariat that the workers would, you know, bring about the revolution that never happened. And so the Fabians just sort of saw the impracticalities and some of the, uh, you know, scholastic versions of Marxism and in, in the theories that they had. And so they wanted to modify, they called it originally reformed Marxism. And uh, Engels at first was not a fan of it, but then he warmed up to it. And it was basically the idea that rather than seeing monopoly capital as the enemy, alliances could be made with monopoly capital and Marxism. And so this becomes reformed Marxism. I think uh, uh, George Bernard Shaw is the first one to use that terminology. But it attracted the uh, attention of some of the most wealthy, powerful people, particularly in the UK, part of the Royal Society uh, establishment, and uh, no less than uh, Lord Rothschild and Cecil Rhodes, uh, Lord Milner, Lord Curtis, uh, Lord Lothian, a whole bunch of these uh, people in the British uh, elite structure became enamored with this idea, as well as this, the thinker John Ruskin, to first bring the British, uh, the, the American Empire, back under the sway of the British. So they had these original dreams of kind of a of a, a grandiose uh, resurgence of the British Empire as that great civilizing force uh, to the whole world. So that you know, go back to Kipling and these kinds of things. That's the ethos of the British Empire, and so Cecil Rhodes wanted to set up a model for doing this based around the British East India Company model. And so he formed the uh, South uh, African Company, BSAC, British South Africa Company, model on the British East India Company. And he wanted to use the uh, corporate model of control of the British East India Company, not just for uh, the monopoly of the diamond ma uh, uh, mining in uh, Africa, the De Beers, uh, empire but also as a strategy and a technique for governance uh, throughout the entire british empire at, done in a shadow government way so the idea was to take elements of jesuitism elements of freemasonry and uh Rhodes created what he called the society of the elect and this was a, a top core group of people including himself uh, lord rothschild and a bunch of the other elites as well as elements of the monarchy the british monarchy is uh, too and the idea would be to uh, foster this ideology, see if they could get America to come back. That didn't really work. And so the, the Fabians put out and created all of these modern institutions that we know about today, explicitly on record. So League of Nations was a Fabian creation, and that was through the machinations of uh, Colonel Edwin Mandel House working for the Rothschild and the British, uh, the, the Bank of England and so forth to get Woodrow Wilson into promoting uh, the notion of the four freedoms, the um a, a new uh, uh, global system of governance and but the league of nations ended up failing and so the uh, fabians came back with a new style of how to do this based on what they call steering committee models so they took the model of uh the round table group the royal institute for international affairs and then they created uh chatham house in the uk which is a secret inner kind of intellectual elite and then they made a, a mirror of that in New York called Pratt House. And that's where we get the Council on Foreign Relations and this inner secret policy group that's semi-secret. They're also public that is above government. And so they, they give policy to government. And that's been the case since the 1920s, since the CFR came about at the behest of the Rockefeller family, who aligned themselves with these uh, interests that I'm speaking of in terms of the uh, uh, elites in the UK. Of course, the classic text on this that we lectured through is from the promoters of this establishment. It's Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope, 1300 pages. He's Bill Clinton's mentor. Um, he's writing from the uh, archives of the CFR. So this is not a conspiracy theory text. This is a real history of the 20th century from these people. Uh, and so long story short, the Fabians after World War One reorganized and, and basically spat out all of these institutions that we now know of as the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations, the uh, Aspen Institute, uh, the uh, you name it, the EU. Right. I mean, all of these basically come out of Fabian ideologists, for example, John Maynard Keynes. Right. I mean, he's basically the uh, mind behind the um, uh, IMF 
and World Bank. And he was, you know, again, famous Fabian socialist. So the, the reason Fabianism matters so much, and we've had, of course, many of most of, all of the Labor Party, a lot of British prime ministers have been uh, Fabians as well. You know, when we look at Trudeau and we look at these people, it's all the same ideology. Mm -hmm. And it's it's, again, a way to meld big capitalism with a form of socialism. And that's why it's so effective. And that's why it's so uh, kind of below, under the radar, because people don't really realize that this is kind of the motivating ideology that's out there. I mean, there's a lot of ideologies out there in the world, but this one seems to be the one that is consistently in the background behind these gigantic institutions, including Bilderberg and including uh, the World Economic Forum. I was going to I, I was going to bring up the World Economic Forum right here because I was going to ask, do you think that melding of the capitalist system and the socialist system is the reason behind Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum pointing to China as the model of the future? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so they always wanted this synthesis. And again, this gets back to the Gnostic elements in Hegel. Uh, you know, the, the Cold War strategists often spoke of, including Brzezinski, who was one of the architects of a lot of this stuff and the architect of the ending the Cold War. He spoke of it as a, as a Manichaean dialectic. And a lot of these thinkers proposed, especially people coming out of the CFR, that they needed a synthesis of Eastern Bloc communism and socialism and Marxism with Western big money neoliberal capitalism. And so that synthesis is represented by ideal situations like China. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. why, you, you know, China is basically uh, big state capitalism is how, how their system is run. And, you know, Rockefeller has many chapters in his biography memoirs where he, he brags and talks about all this. And he himself studied under both von Hayek and Fabian socialist professor uh, Lasky at Harvard. And so that's, that's why you see in David Rockefeller, this perfect mix mixing of uh, monopoly capitalism because von hayek in the last chapter of his book road to serfdom argues for world government so you can see that in the, a lot of the ethos of rockefeller but you can also see the the socialist ethos there as well because studying under lasky david rockefeller then goes on to write these glowing praises of mao and maoism do you think um you've you've done and I, I would suggest anybody go check out your lectures on uh, tragedy and hope. I, that was actually Richard Grove told me about that. Uh, he's a he's a friend of mine as well, a friend of yours. I'm glad you are working together right now on yeah, he, all the stuff you are doing. Oh, he's a great guy. Um, I know he's on vacation right now, but he he'll be coming on in March. We'll be oh, doing cool. something. Yeah, and so I'm excited about that. And um, do you think that the when I was reading um, Antichrist and the Fulfillment of Globalization by GM Davis, um, he, he was talking a lot about HG Wells and the creating a like um, a, a, a one world, um, a one world religion around scientism. Um, do you think that that is kind of um, developed or do you think they're, they were already rooted in that ideal as um, as Fabianism was was taken off. Uh, can you say that again? Do, do I think what now? Do I think that H.G. Wells had already developed? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying, do you think that H.G. Wells was was just revealing what they were already trying to do, or was was he? just evolving and already like a thought process that was that hadn't gotten there yet with the with scientism as a religion of the future was that a new idea in the 40s or was that something they had been working no on? that was older so this this really has predecessors in theosophy which i think was a british establishment creation for a a kind of new religion and so that's why you see you know, early on in the turn of the century, you've got Madame Blavatsky, Alice Bailey, and Annie Besant pushing a open form of Gnosticism where they really wanted to make the new religion of the new age, the new aeon, something more scientific. So scientism has a lot of overlap and parallel with theosophy. And, you know, they, they saw themselves mm -hmm. as kind of spiritual scientists, the theosophists. So I would say that, <clears throat> and that, that precede, well, that's kind of, 
you know, when, when H.G. Wells was first starting to write at the turn of the century, that's around the, the time that theosophy is beginning. And it looks to me like theosophy is really this kind of cover for uh, not just in the floating the idea of a new religion and a new age and all that, but also a kind of um, a front for intelligence, British intelligence operations, which uh, Dr. Richard Spencer goes into in terms of uh, if you look up his paper that he wrote on um, Nicholas Rorick, uh, Madame Blavatsky and her handlers. And I think he shows that <clears throat> theosophy was a really uh, another element by which the KGB and British intelligence could have an overlap. So that's, I think, prior to what was going on with Wells or contemporary with Wells and, and actually came from a higher level of the of the establishment than Wells because H.G. Wells was recruited into this from the middle class. Mm. So he was really just a middle class person brought into the left wing side of the establishment in the British Empire known as the Fabians. And they had this cloak of being sort of humanitarian and into progress and, and uh, you know, enlightenment, all this kind of stuff. So I think that Wells probably was working with what he saw as a coming trend, but that they, they did have this planned out as a um, either to have a form of uh, scientism as a future religion or a form of new age theosophy as a future religion that was planned out right around the same time. Yeah. Night, turn of the century. That's so, why the UN, by the way, officially adopts as its operating system, philosophy, theosophy. Mm. If you look up the loosest trust and all that. Right. It, it, and, and throughout like, I mean, we really saw this like kind of manifest and I think it took root with a lot of us between listening to you and a few other people. Um, I, I began to understand this spiritual war that we were entangled in. And, um, I very grateful to the work that you've done on, on the more spiritual side of things. And if people aren't aware of that, they, they really need to go check out your, your apologetics. Cause I, I really do appreciate what you've been doing there. Thanks man. I appreciate that. Um, so whenever you look at where we're at today and, and you look at the secularism, you look at the world economic forum, you look at kind of the scientism and what's happening with it. And, and you draw that conclusion back through Fabianism into the Gnostic gospel, so to speak. How do, how do you get there through, through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s? 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s? Well, not quite the 30s. I was saying the 40s because that's when Wells was writing. So how do I get to from Gnosticism? Like, like, how did they evolve that into what we see today? So one uh, element that was crucial to that evolution is science fiction. And a lot of the science fiction writers of the 40s and 50s, like Asimov, for example, if you read Foundation, I think he kind of took a lot of these H.G. Wells patterns and principles. And in Foundation, he makes the future uh, tech civilizations, future technocracy have a uh, scientism-based religion. So there's, a, there's an inner core that knows that uh, it's all trickery of science. But then in, in the novel, you have this outer group that runs a religion. But it's all just scientific kind of techniques and tricks that controls a religion. There was other uh, theorists involved with some of this uh, uh, international socialism, like Auguste Comte, uh, you know, who had posited the, the creation of a new world religion. Brave New World has the theorizing of a new world religion that is uh, based on Huxley's perennial philosophy, which is, again, another form of Gnosticism. So basically, it's just all the world religions blended into some kind of future religion. So I think what was going on from the time of Wells up through these decades was searching for the thing that would catch on or that would be the ideal future religion that they could control. And one of those uh, things that was so important to capture from this vantage point was the Vatican, because the Vatican already is kind of an existing structure that's international. And so if you could capture that uh, institution for these purposes, then you could get perhaps an already existing model of a world government or perhaps even move Vatican uh, theology in the direction of perennialism, Gnosticism, theosophy. And I think you kind of begin to see that with a lot of the Vatican II documents. 
in the natural theology that they have, they're sort of capitulating to perennialism and saying, well, basically we're all kind of arguing for the same thing under different cloaks and under different symbols. And so God is really just this amorphous superstructure thing that's, that speaks through all the world religions. And this is kind of what you begin to see emerging uh, at the time at the, in the document, Vatican, Vatican II documents like Nostratate. And now with Francis, we're seeing, you know, these new synods, these new, you know, Amazon Synod, the uh, uh, his, Fratelli Tutti uh, encyclical, uh, the the humanist Synod that he wanted to propose, whatever that crazy thing was going to be that got shut down for Koof. We're beginning to see that move on to the next level. And Francis is a great example we're talking about because Francis really wants to see, sometimes he sounds like a theosophist. Sometimes he sounds like a syncretist. Sometimes he sounds like a Catholic. Sometimes he sounds like a Lutheran and sometimes he sounds like uh, he's promoting a new world religion. And I think mm -hmm. that he's a great image, a great symbol of the next phase of that evolving of the Roman Catholic institution, which Brzezinski talked about in between two ages. He said, let's just use Roman Catholicism as, a, as an NGO, make it a form of soft power for Americanism. Now, he's writing during the Cold War, uh, mm -hmm. much like Quigley and these other writers. David Wimhoff talks about during the Cold War that the CIA really wanted the Roman Catholic institution to be uh, a symbol and a, a tool during the Cold War, the projection of Americanism, which is soft power. And then now, since that institution is captured, and you see that with the pushing out of Benedict, for example, um, it's just time to move into the next phase. So the same masters that were behind JP2 being this uh, big Cold War symbol, now they want to move it to the next phase. So that's what's going on in the Roman Catholic world. That's the, the, the Roman Catholicism, I'm saying, is the kind of the easiest way to see an yeah. example of what you're talking about of uh what's something that gets us from the 40s up to today but other things you could point to too i mean the, the religion of the you know new age uh thought moving from being this weird theosophical movement promoted by the british elites to by the time of the un it becoming the official philosophy of the un and then and then unesco essentially promoting this new age stuff right the un has a, a meditation room with a giant black cube in it which is really creepy <laughs> i mean so that's that's how i get from you know these elements and then of course in the 1960s the the new age movement explodes <coughs> and yeah. that has to so you, we get for example the esalen institute i think that's kind of the the think tank behind the new age movement in the 60s and 70s taking off uh, but it's, that's another version of Gnosticism. I mean, new age thought is just Gnostic stuff repackaged and watered down. Yeah, no, for sure. It seems like, and you probably explain it better, which is why I asked you to, to talk about it, but it seems like what they're doing is they're just leveraging authority that people already recognize and, and they're, and they're kind of catapulting the Gnostic kind of ideal into the propaganda. Yeah. Ecumenism is another example of it. Ecumenism has Gnostic uh, elements to it. And the beginning of the ecumenist movement in the 1893 or five parliament world religions, where you had Swami Vivekananda showing up and saying, I'm, I'm here to create a new world religion and Hinduism would be the basis for it. So that uh, is, is kind of parallel with Blavatsky because Blavatsky thinks Hinduism is very useful for this, uh, syncretist you know world religion approach and so yeah i think you could look at the ecumenist movement how that's promoted by funded by the rockefeller family by their own bragging rights in their in their yeah. in their own writings they brag about putting millions of dollars into it to get it going and make it a tool of uh of western geopolitical uh influence and so you know wemhoff has a great point in his book as to well, why would they want this as a extension of, of Americanism. And the, the point is that um, the, the ethos of Americanism is kind of fundamentally Gnostic itself. I mean, it comes out of the revolution and it's not to say that everything the founding fathers taught was bad or that they were all evil, but it's very influenced by several things, right? Enlightenment philosophy, not which is Gnostic, as well as biblical law, Roman common law, uh, Italian thinkers in uh, Italian Republic, Machiavelli, all of that goes into the influencing of the founding of the American Republic. But there is that Gnostic element there. And part of that Gnostic element ends up being the notion of everything being commodified uh, and everything being dominated by markets. And so the <clears throat> Wemhoff argues that that's only going to naturally spill over to religion. 
So you're going to have ecumenism as the ultimate model of American religious commodification, right? Right. Well, it's a thing that you just like you're, you can buy, purchase whatever you want your identity to be man, woman, go uh, pay the doctor and you can purchase that identity or just claim it. Likewise, uh, you can just purchase or claim uh, your religious identity and that's ecumenism. Yes. And, and it, and it seems like that, that kind of, um, on demand kind of thinking that Western, uh, Western culture has adopted that everything's on demand. There's, there's very little, um, delayed gratification anymore has led to a more Gnostic view where it's, you can just download this material. You can just download the consciousness of, of the past and, and have all knowledge at your expose, you know, at your disposal to do what you want with. And so it's, it's made it very easy for, for the elites to sell it like that they know better, right? Because they're, they're able to access that there's more access. And I don't know it for some reason, I, maybe I was mistaken in thinking that the more access people had to pass knowledge and into, to reading the writings of past elites would make it harder for the current elites to, to have this rule and, and, and hold on to it. Mm -hmm. But it seems like in a lot of ways, it makes it easier for them. Yeah. I think that's the danger that the dual, the double-sided sword of uh double-edged sword of the internet technology. I mean, the internet itself is kind of a, a Gnostic kind of thing because not in itself, but it gives the impression that, you know, the ease of the transference of the information through this, you know, higher dimension of the ether, you know, where the information is being transmitted wirelessly or whatever that, that that's how somehow like better or that it's, uh, you know, metaphysically superior. So it's kind of inherently got this Gnostic uh, potentiality behind it, the way it's sold. And that will, that ties into a lot of the promotion of transhumanism because the idea here is that we're going to transcend our bodies. We're not going to be limited by time and space. And the whole idea of the Gnostic system is that we are limited in bodies as prison and limited by time and space as a kind of prison by some evil creator god, Yaldabaoth, right? So you can see how it, it blends so well with the idea of tech and internet culture and all that kind of stuff where people just, just will naturally flip from you know, being online all the time to, oh yeah, of course I want to go into the coon pod. Of course I want to have the, you know, chip in my head that allows me to access the internet directly from my brain. And it's, it's just inherently got this Gnostic selling point to it. And that's because I think if you go back to, there's a great documentary that covered this called It's called, uh, uh, MK ultra, the Unabomber and the internet. It was, it was made in like 2003 or four, but it gets into a lot of the positivist, logical positivist materialist thought behind the people who were uh, speculating and talking about the releasing of the internet to the public, including some of the high level Pentagon people who were actually hang hanging out at the uh, Esalen Institute. And they, they sat there like, Oh yeah, we're totally scientific people, engineers, blah, blah. And then they start talking about this stuff and they're like, Oh yeah, because we're going to transcend our bodies. We're going to, uh, you know, move into this information age, which will give way to this, you know, transhumanist age. Um, so they go from sounding like engineers and tech people to sounding like some sort of weird Gnostic occultist in that, in that, in the way they discuss the, the coming of the internet. And that makes sense because if you think about, if you read perennial philosophy by Huxley, he says the body, so particularity is a problem. And he says that if we think about any kinds of identities that particularize, so your identity as a family, your identity as a nation, your identity as an ethnic group, your identity as, you know, whatever, white male, whatever, all of those identities, he is kind of arguing, are the problem. So the reason that men fight, the reason we have war, the reason we have disputes and the reason we don't get along is because of the differences. When, of course, that's not the problem. The problem is man's sin not his ontological metaphysical existence. Right. Gnostic systems always attribute man's problem and evil to some metaphysical thing and not to a moral thing. 
So that's the commonality I see there, which is just that they want to erase all uh, versions of identity and make it into something that you can just sort of will. Oh, I will to identify as, uh, you know, an attack helicopter, as BG Cumbie says, right? Because that means that I, there is no such thing as identity or there's no particularity. There's no, there's no law of identity anymore in the Aristotelian sense. It doesn't exist. It's a social construct. So that paves the way for people to buy into the overall technocratic global brain ideology, which is what they want to bring in. Literally linking everybody into a, a giant global brain. Right. And they, they've convinced it's like they 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 make it easier on themselves by manipulating the public to concern themselves so much with their own materialist standards that that they're too distracted to pay any attention to what the elites are doing and so necessarily they've secularized the the public in such a way that it's almost considered um, like a, a moral good to be secular and to be concerned only with the modern day. Yeah, the deriding of the ancients, right? The deriding of perennial thought and <laughs> wisdom, uh, you know, that's passed down. The assumption being, you know, everybody prior to what the existence of computers was you know totally you know useless and worthless when of course it's the opposite you know it's the you know the saints divine revelation these kinds of things are much right. more prescient than than we are so yeah i would i would say i totally agree there yeah they it, it's it's almost like um this it's it's like this this whole move with like the lgbtq movement or with um I mean, any of these social movements, it's it's all a distraction away from a higher like level of being in order to like to get the the God's creation to worship the existence of, of modernity. And I don't know, I, I'm trying to tie that that Gnosticism into that because I'm like, OK, I understand the goal is that if I can get you to not pay attention to the bigger picture of what the actions I'm taking, then I can actually manipulate you and, and build my wealth, power, and influence. But where does it help them other, other than just the distraction element? Well, no, it's not a mere distraction. It's what I'm saying is that there is this emerging world religion that we're witnessing, I think, coming about pretty much now, which is what they've been kind of looking for for a long time to see what would be the thing that fits. And it looks like it's going to be something relating to, you know, what Francis and, and uh, the ecumenists in Rome are up to. And that has to do with, I think, again, being that being a captured institution by these these geopolitical powers who do have a commitment to some version of Gnosticism or Luciferianism. And so it's not merely a distraction. It is that, but you're you're right about that. But it's also that it's part and parcel with the plan to integrate everyone into this global brain. And mm. so you have to get people to do this. They almost would like it to be like a new religion, like a cult. There's a great phrase in St. Gregory Palamas where he talks about the what heres what heresies are like Gnosticism are ideological idols so they're in other words they're the is a, a phrase i'm going to coin uh, ideology <laughs> he uses the greek term but I, it, it says it's a kind of logismoi that deals with uh delusion but it's not a like it's not like a totem pole right it's not an idol that you're worshiping like you know the pick the buddha statue or whatever it's an idol that's ideological um, and that's what all heresies are. And I think that Gnosticism is one of these key uh, ideo ideology elements. And so they want it as an actual cult, not just a distraction. That's why I think if you look at the last three years, how did everybody treat science? They treated it like a religion. Trust the mm -hmm. science was the dictum. Okay, that's a yeah. religious, that's a religious phrase. Right. So. Yeah. And they, I mean, they wore the mask like a Christian would it's wear a cross. sacrament. Well, the, that and the stabbies were viewed as sacraments. Right. Right. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I mean, I know you bring up the Vatican and it, it, that's the easiest of all to, to kind of dig into is into the Vatican. I had actually, um, uh, contacted Jim Jotra. So like one of the things I'm interested in is trying to figure out how, um, the, the CIA bribery and, and buying off of Constantinople of the forties has affected Bartholomew here recently. And you, you can look at, I can't remember the, the patriarch's name in Ukraine of the new Ukrainian church. Um, but he was working with the CIA and Bartholomew to, to put this church forward. So it's not just Catholicism that's being attacked. It's all religions that are, you know, all, all denominations of Christianity are under attack. Yeah. I mean, the goal here is to move them into this geopolitical subservient structure. Right. And I don't know if we're in the last days or anything like that, but it's certainly the spirit of antichrist, whether it's the actual antichrist that's going to manifest, I don't know, but right. you know, that movement to move everything into this sort of uh, tower of Babel, you know, imagery and symbology is, is exactly what is behind all of this. And it's ultimately just a rejection of the logos. It's a rejection of the church, uh, ma- motivated in, man- in its uh, energy by the these demonic powers so absolutely and you know the irony is that you can read a lot of high-level geopolitical people like brzezinski and kissinger and all these kinds of figures and and y- you know you could be a book nerd like me and do that but you don't have to because actually quite a few saints and elders of recent note said the same stuff <laughs> like paesio says they're just trying to erect an antichrist world system and they're going to try to track and trace everybody. So try to live off the grid. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he sums it up in like, you know, like one paragraph, uh, you know, so the irony being that the, the only people that seem to really know what's going on are the Orthodox saints and elders and like Kissinger, Brzezinski, Rockefeller. Right. And they're all there's If they say the same thing, then I could say that's probably what's going on. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. No doubt. I know, um, well, Brzezinski, he, whenever he wrote, um, the grand chessboard, he had spent a lot of time, uh, writing about Ukraine yep, and about, um, the, the natural gas and the resources that were available in Ukraine. So when, when we look at that Russia and Ukraine, we, we absolutely do see the geopolitical power structure and, and, and or power struggle, I'm sorry. And, but I think we're looking at, um, a spiritual struggle as well. Um, when Russia is speaking out against, you know, the world economic forum and their cronies going about their business around the world. Yeah, I think the Ukraine is key. I was just reading a whole bunch on that last night. Not not so much from Brzezinski. I know what you're talking about because uh, a lot of analysts had pointed out. I think uh, we, we had an article by Mark Hackard on my website that he wrote in, I think, 2015 or 16, where he was talking about the what had Brzezinski had written and this kind of stuff and that Ukraine would be the coming hotspot. So he was way ahead of his time on that. And that's because he, you know, he knew what Brzezinski had said and grand chessboard and Brzezinski talked about it again, I think in uh, his later book, strategic vision about the importance of Ukraine. So he had written twice on that, but grand chessboard was like 98, I think. So, and then he writes again about it in 2014 or 15 in strategic vision. And so, um, yeah, I, I was just reading more about the, cause I thought I had read somewhere that the Galen organization had a connection to Ukraine, but I wasn't really sure. But then I, re- I remembered I was right about that because I'm also reading Paul Williams book on the history of Gladio and how that was all these, uh, right-wing fascist, uh, CIA run, uh, stay behind units, which are the model for a lot of, uh, modern day T E R R O R. Uh, and that had a lot to do with the Vatican bank and sort of, uh, uh, back channel funding for cold war stuff as well as cia connections to the vatican but the reason that's such a big deal is not so much because i'm saying that i'm not saying oh that makes the communists good guys no it's not it's not like that 
it's like you know we were watching this movie uh, lives of others the other day <clears throat> the 2006 german movie it's really good i, I highly recommend it because it's about uh, a guy who's the east german stasi surveillance dude in 1982 spying on this guy who's a, a playwright and his girlfriend who's an actress and so they're basically just harassing and tormenting this this couple because they might have uh, anti-stasi sentiments so the point I'm trying to make in that analysis that I did a couple nights ago on th these various books I've been reading was not that, and everybody, I don't understand, everybody mis misunderstands me when I talk about this because when I start critiquing the OSS and the CIA and these Galen Autoscorzani networks and how that ties into the Ukraine, they start thinking, oh, so you're saying communists are good. No. Uh, I mean, <laughs> my point is that if you watch Lives of Others and the nightmare evil of what the Stasi are doing, what I'm saying is that what Klaus and company want to bring in is 10 times worse than that. So it's not bad versus good. It's bad to even worse. That's what I'm trying to say. So I don't know why people can't understand that, but they always say, oh, you're a KGB stooge because you're critiquing what the CIA was up to in the Cold War. No, two bad guys, <laughs> two, just two different bad guys. So, you know, look up Stepan Bandera, look up, uh, you know, uh, General uh, Lebed, not General Lebed. I always get this guy's name wrong. But anyway, he, he's the connect to... Uh, the, do you know what I mean by the Galen Scorsini network? Basically, that these were the uh, people from the uh, Tiny Mustache Man uh, intelligence networks that Dulles and Donovan uh, aligned mm -hmm. with to send to train and um, teach black ops, basically, to people in various countries during the Cold War. And one of those groups was to say so send to the ukraine wasn't that operation sunrise if i'm not probably mistaken. there's different ones that the the one in uh ukraine has a really weird name I'm trying to remember what it's, it's like i was reading it last night late at night i can't remember the name of it but basically it said like, i'll read this article from a geopolitical analyst just real quick he says stepan bandera was living in 1946 in munich there he worked in the protection in close collaboration with galen the Nazi spymaster turned CIA agent who was the future head of West German intelligence. Galen was under Nazi, was a completely unrepentant Nazi who had operated the infamous rat lines, blah, 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 blah. And then it goes on to say that Bandera uh, and the OUN, or rather the SB, the secret police, uh, what is who formed the, the, they formed the secret police network for Labed. Mm. this uh lebed character and so that's the connect between galen and uh, in the 1950s after parachuting 85 agents into ukraine the cia concluded the project uh was ultimately a failure but lebed who had served as the organization's foreign minister head of the secret police was described by u.s army intelligence as a, a sadist and german collaborator blah 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 but so that's the connect between um lebed and the galen network yeah and galen is working with the cia in the ukraine to set up those as those networks. so that's what we're seeing today is the the extension of these networks basically right so the yeah. nazis in ukraine the azov right sector probably that's all from this stuff it, it's really i think it's really hard for people that that come at you with like those binary thoughts to to get into the nuance and right understand how they the the globalist ideology is supposed to reel in order out of the chaos that it is that it is put forward and yeah i mean that's a that's a thing brzezinski talked about he had a whole strategy called uh, uh um arc of crisis and that was his right. way to destabilize all those soviet bloc countries to integrate them into NATO and, and Western neoliberalism. Right. So yeah. I mean, it admittedly calls it right. Uh, and, and the whole Gladio model too, is a model of uh, terror and destabilization. Yeah. Gladio is a, a, a deep subject. I, I still need to do an episode on Gladio at some point. Cause I, I read that book and I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> it, it just it was one of those things it just kicked me in the teeth like i was like that that is incredible like i can't believe it like yeah I, I, I got interested in a lot of these subjects 
because I watched Oliver Stone's JFK when I was 12 years old. Yeah, yeah, me too. Right. And yeah. so it was like, all right, like I want to I want to be a CIA hitman. That's <laughs> yeah. you know. And so I started reading in on that and that's what kind of drug me into the subject matter. And uh yeah, like when when I read Gladio, I was like this is that's insane. I think Gladio in some ways is even um like is more evil than MK Ultra in in some areas. Yeah, I mean, when you see those connections to what they were uh, planning and what they were up to, you know, and how it ties into even T E R R O R operations post Cold War, uh, mm. you can begin to see how. Yeah, that's kind of a model for how they run a lot of these these groups. Right. So in that sense, yeah, it could be it could be. Uh, Eat more evil than than what we know about M. Keltra. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and that's that's good to clarify what we know because there's a lot we don't know. Um, there were a lot of right. documents that were done away with that that we're True. never going to have access to. Um, and there there are a lot of um, when it comes to like subjects like that, there there are a lot of people out there saying a lot of things and you have to be very, very careful in digging into them because it's like yeah. how much of this is true. How much is it? Right. A lot of disinfo. Off? Absolutely. Right. Right. And yeah, so, waiting through the disinfo is like a huge, like, I mean, I mean, I think everybody kind of goes through phases when you study this information, you know, you're going to go through in, in any, anybody getting deep into this kind of information you're, you're going to get duped and be wrong on, on issues so you yeah. always have to be ready to correct our, our ideas i mean you know in my 20s i was a traditional catholic so i just saw all the all of this as like oh it's the you know traditional catholic vatican uh forces versus everything else and you know over time you know obviously i came to no longer have that view so there's a lot more nuance like you said a lot more um higher level strategizing and planning that's going on beyond just a simple Vatican versus Mason's dialectic. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard to get out of there and I, you do get a bad rap by a lot of people. Um, I, and I, I kind of get why, but at the same time I'm like, yeah, but you're, you're looking at things from a binary and, and, and Jay's talking about things from this, broad view right it's very easy to get to forget that there are a lot more sides to a story yeah than than what we've been fed and uh, a lot of people have a hard time getting around that yeah so so when when we're getting into modern day and we're looking at the 21st century and we're trying to draw out some um some lessons from yesteryear and and what we can learn from how the elites operate how the gnostic system has kind of weaved its way in through our system of thought what how how is it that we can like kind of analyze our own objections or our own analysis of what's going on so that so that we can weed out this kind of like kind of Gnostic idea that's already like kind of weaved its way into our mind through propaganda. Well, I think first thing I would think about is the idea that man's problems are a lack of knowledge. Does that really seem to be the case? I mean, we see a lot of human beings who've had a lot of knowledge in history and they seem to still be evil. <laughs> so, I mean, think about the archetype of the evil genius, right? I mean, if if knowledge is man's problem, then there, why would there ever be an evil genius? And if you read Notes from the Underground, Dostoevsky is kind of making this point in that story that man's problem isn't just knowledge. Mm. Uh, I would say man's problem can't be uh, the external world because the external world isn't the problem yeah we can be influenced by the external world we can have a bad upbringing something like that we can be traumatized but those things themselves can't be inherently evil or else we would be into some kind of weird dualistic system and i think dualistic systems are kind of self-reputing so 
Um, so if it's not the world or if it's not the body or man himself or knowledge, then what's man's problem? Well, it's got to be something spiritual. It's got to be something uh, more than just intellect or the faculty of reasoning. So those are the things that I think to keep in mind in, in terms of what Gnosticism proposes because it proposes a tech solution to man. But again, that solution is only as good as the diagnosis of the problem. So if the diagnosis of the problem is wrong, then that's not going to be a good solution. It's not going to solve the problems that it's supposedly setting out to solve. So it all depends on our paradigms and our presuppositions. But I would say that, you know, I think orthodoxy has a much better approach to how we find healing than Silicon Valley. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, who, who am I going to listen to for healing? Yeah, yeah. I, I look at I I look at the issues that we run into today and I I just I can't help but go back to Orwell's uh, 1946 essay politics and the English language and 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 see what he was complaining about in the 40s about how the politicians attacked the English language and they they like de-arm language in itself and utilize these semi-innocuous terms to to bring in these tyrannical systems like the right. patriot act yeah yeah you know and 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 I, I i i i need to do an episode where i'm where i'm examining that essay by orwell alongside um edward bernays propaganda yeah, that'd be perfect yeah, I mean the t retooling of language to uh, to it can be multiple things, right? So Marx was a, a philologist when he was an academic, so he was really interested in this. He would spend hours a day studying about languages and terms and what they meant, what they what, how they were used. And I think we see that in the left, they've always understood the power of controlling language. And so when Orwell's writing about that, he, you know, as in, in 1984, it's the Fabians that are Ingsoc. Mm -hmm. And so the, it seems to have been a Fabian technocrat idea that they would have to ban and attack language. You see that in the, I mean, you call your podcast, what, Year Zero, right? This is yeah. like the revolutionary Marxist idea that you can wipe out everything that came before. And that has to be applied to language. So they yeah. have to re they have to control the language because language allows individuals to particularize. Unfortunately to for me, I, I found out about that after I named my podcast. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I actually named my podcast because uh, I was reading through um Vault Seven and the CIA oh. had a year zero program. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And and I was like, yeah, that's what I'm naming my podcast. And then, huh. I, and then I was like, oh, crap. But now it's perfect for a uh, great reset because great reset is a kind of year zero, right? It, um, it absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I forgot what I was saying, but I'm sorry. I no, it's okay. It's all yeah. good. I mean, I think I was, I made the point though, that, uh, part of wiping away everything that came before like a Maoist type of thing necessarily will involve uh, oh language because language allows you to identify things. So yeah. one of the things that has to be destroyed is the law of identity, the Aristotelian mm -hmm. law of identity because law of identity allows you to pick out and name and identify objects with their essences, their natures. And this yeah. is an attack on things having natures or essences, which is postmodernism, social, everything's a social construct. To have everything be a social construct, there can't be Aristotelian laws of identity, laws of logic, laws of non-contradiction, law of excluded middle. All that has to go away. And so everything has to be a creation of your mind, which is Gnosticism. Right. Right. Well, man, we're running on an hour. I don't want to keep you too long. I know you got you know, a trip to plan for and all that stuff coming up. So plug what you got to plug. Give any final thoughts on the subject at hand. And maybe we can plan another uh, podcast. We'll get together and we'll we'll break down that Orwell essay and and compare it to Propaganda by Bernays. And, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, and dig into that. that. Yeah. If, if you go to the Discord, our Discord, uh, Father Deacon Dr. Ananias, I think you could probably find it on his uh, academia.edu page too. He has a paper on Gnosticism, technocracy, and scientism. And uh, it's really good. I recommend that paper. Uh, it's also, I think, printed in... Uh, 
one of the books about let us uh, the book not let us not fear death i think it's his essays in that book too but uh, that's really good for this topic uh we'll be live february 11th in austin texas uh from 2 to 7 p.m uh, right outside ut austin uh should be a hype event we got a lot of people there <clears throat> Uh, any haters that want to come there's security there's there's cameras so you're not going to do anything there um and i I try to be armed so so if anybody wants to well you're you'll be in texas so there will be plenty of people that are armed uh yeah so we're doing that you get the tickets at the top of my twitter uh it's on my website too then um yeah so that's what's coming up i think we're filming a tucker special so that'll be going up uh, probably the next few weeks as well so i'm excited about that um and then, uh, yeah, you can just find me at my website or my channel. Man, man, Tucker's Tucker's going full red pill. He's had Charles Haywood, Mincha Moldbug, and Jay Dyer. Who's Who's Charles Haywood? I've heard of. I know who uh, Moldbug is, but who's, who's Charles? That? Charles is my buddy. He does a does a podcast called The Worthy House. You'd really like him. He's Orthodox as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay. y'all get. Yeah, he does um, book reviews. That's nice. that's pretty much all he does. I've had him on the podcast. And he's a really good dude. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll have to look into him. Just send me yeah. his link. I will. I will. All right. All right, Thanks, brother. Man. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. You have a safe trip. I'll be praying for you. And we'll definitely get together and set something else up later on. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me on. Sorry I was late. And thank you for your patience. Yeah, no worries, man. You have a good one, bro. You too. Later. Bye.